0: Because the other thing I hate is I read all of the engineering you know, garbage that's put out there. And it's so much bullshit. And I call bullshit on it. Never once has anybody said, oh, well, he's not really an authority. He, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Everybody just says, oh, OK, we're not going to challenge this. You make a lot of friends along the way. But I always kind of say they're friends of my bike. They're not really friends of me because as soon as you stop, They feel like they're not your friends anymore. And I went to like these small mom and pop sort of uh, handlebar makers. And I'm like, hey, can you make this for us? And they're like, yeah, sure, we could do that. I'm like, well, I need 200,000 of them. And they were just blown away by the quantities that we needed. And we created so many millionaires on the back of this. I think it's innovation. I think if you stop innovating, you die. Um, that's that's my impression and I think you know you mentioned Nokia, I think it's the same, right? They they stopped innovating and they, they died. Building any great business, it obviously takes a lot of single-minded focus and you spend a lot of time away from your family, away from your friends, building this business and you maybe sometimes I think you lose you lose sight of what's really important.
1: The cost of quote unquote success because Can we call Phelps' achievement success if he's no one to celebrate it with and he doesn't like who he's become? It's
0: really important to have that safety net. No matter what it is that you're doing, if you're trying to achieve any sort of success and you don't have that safety net, it's really easy, I think, to fail and to to falter. And no matter how successful you've been, it's really hard to, to justify that it was worth it.
1: I'm Anthony Walsh. This is the Roadman Cycling Podcast a founder series, where we get inside the heads of those who drive this planet forward. You can quote them, you can disagree with them, you can glorify or vilify them. The only thing you can't do is ignore them, because they change things, they push the human race forward. And while some may see them as crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. It's episode 653 of the Roadman Cycling Podcast. It's a founder series, and I sit down and chat with Factor founder, Rob Jatelis. Roadman, welcome back to another Roadman Cycling Podcast. Today, I'm in the hot seat with Rob Jatelis, the founder of Factor Bikes. Rob is a guy who's worked behind the scenes for a long time and he's partially responsible for the boom in the carbon fiber industry within cycling, one of those early pioneers. He was working behind the scenes, building other brands, building their equipment for them, but he had that entrepreneurial spirit coursing through his veins. It comes out time and time again in this conversation. Like entrepreneurs, he wasn't happy. He's never happy working from someone else. It can't produce happiness. It's not in the makeup of the entrepreneur. So he struck out on his own with the brand Factor. And indeed, that entrepreneurial spirit is now emblazoned on the frames with the words, never status quo. Factor has been a runaway success from Tour de France podiums to stage wins and the biggest one-day races in the world. They're sponsoring Israel Premier Tech and even have Chris Froome aboard the bike. But this is more than a story about building a brand. This is a story of a man. This is a story of Rob. This is a story of the personal toll, the sacrifice it takes to be successful in business. It's a rare behind the scenes look into the industry that we love, warts and all. Roadmen, let me welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast, Rob us Hey Rob, what's going on? Welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast.
0: Thank you. Good to be here.
1: Rob, I'm curious as to people's motivations for the careers they choose. For me, when I got into law in a previous life, it was a weird siphoning of my options just getting closed to further out travel down this academic funnel. You know, at some point when I would got a first class honors degree, I would got a first class honors master's, no one really took me aside and said, hey, you know what, you'd be a great bricklayer it was like law, medicine. They were the only options left available. And I chose law. So since then, because that was an error for me, since then I've been kind of fascinated as to why people choose the careers they choose. What inspired you to choose a career in bike manufacturing? Like, Was there a specific moment that sparked that interest?
0: Well, I think there's really only one excuse for owning a bike company. And that's, I like bikes. Um, Other than that, there's really no reason to do it. And so I just think that, you know, for me, it was like a series of events that have led to where I am today. You know, coming to Taiwan to visit my girlfriend was like the first step. And then ending up working for a bicycle factory in Taiwan, second step. And it was just a series of events of, hey, you know, there's this opportunity available. Would you like to try? And I'm one of those people that doesn't spend a lot of time thinking about what could go wrong. I'm like, yeah, let's just give it a shot. And so, you know, all of those things have led
1: to where I am today. What year did you head out to Taiwan first? Uh, 1996. So help us for those of us that haven't been out to Taiwan, especially those who haven't been there in the 90s. What was the state of manufacturing in Taiwan then?
0: Uh, 1996 was still pretty entry-level bicycle-wise. The high end was still pretty much made in Europe and the United States. Um, It hadn't really entered Taiwan yet. And then carbon fiber manufacturing was really in its infancy. It was basically golf club shafts and some tennis rackets, but nothing like what we see
1: today. Were they making fishing rods out of carbon fiber then, or did not happen yet? Fishing rods were
0: made out of carbon fiber, but they weren't made here in Taiwan. That was a Japanese thing.
1: Yeah, because that was my first exposure to carbon fiber. My dad was a fisherman, and I remember seeing those and just being fascinated by the strength of the material. And, you know, some of the sharks they hook are insane, and I just couldn't get over. And I was, you know, my dad didn't have much of an engineering background, so he just fobbed me off. I was like, how can these withstand so much force without just snapping? Because, you know, when I looked at a hockey stick or something, at a certain point, if you stood on it, it just snapped. And I couldn't understand why the fishing rod didn't do the exact same.
0: Yeah, well, I, I think it's just the way the fishing rod has been engineered. And the fishing rod also has a lot of fiberglass in it, which is a lot more flexible than carbon fiber. So it allows it to, uh, to be able to withstand those kind of forces.
1: Well, where did the interest in cycling come from? Because 1996 is two years before the Armstrong comeback. It's definitely quite a <laughs> while before cycling popped off into Team Sky and what we all know what to be now.
0: Yeah, well, I started to race bikes when I was 13 years old, uh, growing up in uh, Miami, Florida. And I was very fortunate that um, one of my close friends is uh, Chris and Kevin Carmichael, who are a few years older than me. Um, Chris went on to be you know working together with Lance as part of uh, you know his his coaching team. And his brother, who was a physician, was my roommate when I was in uh, university. And so I always had sort of like these guys to look up to and to learn about cycling from. And you know, I worked my ways through you know different levels and you know, up into being a professional, but not a very good one. And then, uh, when I got to Taiwan, it was like a good opportunity. Okay, I'm racing bikes, I'm at a pretty high level, but maybe now I can try something else.
1: Do you think looking at how the industry has developed from 96 to now, could you have foreseen the direction it's gone?
0: Um, I don't think that I knew enough when I first arrived there, but I think it all sort of makes sense now. I think that a lot of the industry was also in Japan and Japan was sort of in the process of transferring a lot to Taiwan. And a lot of companies were, you know, discovering that Taiwan was quite capable of making very high-end products, when I think the impression in the beginning was, oh, this is a low-end, cheap kind of thing. But then when people started to really understand that, hey, if they can make a motorcycle, they can definitely make a bicycle, or they can make bicycle parts, and that sort of changed everything. And that was really sort of the foundation of my business was when I first got it started, was that. There was vendors available that could do anything in Taiwan that was being done
1: in the Europe or the United States. So help us to understand the ecosystem as it exists now, because I think there's a big misconception about how bikes are made. On the one hand, people dramatically oversimplify. They say, well, basically every bike frame is coming out of one of two factories and they just sprayed them up with a different spray job. And then on the other end of that, people believe that nearly every single bike is a work of art that's made by hand and has crazy amount of love and care in it. I'm guessing the answer is somewhere in the middle, but maybe just give us an insight to what that ecosystem looks like at the moment. Well, I mean, the
0: carbon fiber bicycle industry really is kind of like, there's three sort of layers of it, I would say. There's about five factories now that probably produce a few million frames, and most of the more famous name brands come out of those factories. Then you get the next sort of tier down, which then works for sort of the next tier of the bicycle industry. You know, not the giants or treks, but sort of the next level down. So, And then there's this third level, which is these very small factories that are producing lots of open model frames that we call them, where almost anyone could go buy, you know, from one to 10 to 100 frames from those really small factories. And so we have to look at sort of those three tiers. So when everybody says the bikes are coming out of all the same factories, that is somewhat true when you're talking about, you know, the giant Trek specialized conundrum but then when you start to get further down then you know those smaller brands are actually not able to actually work inside of one of those bigger carbon fiber factories
1: is there a correct assumption from me to say that this tiered system that you've set up like the top tier there's something better going on there there's better moles there's better quality assurance what is it that separates tier one from tier two from tier three
0: Um, I would say tier one is really about the size of the factory. So the amount that they can produce, then they're only willing to work for companies that can actually order quite a lot of product. So, you know, they're not going to want to accept an order for less than a few thousand units when, you know, and then they want to get several you know times a year, those orders for a few thousand units as a minimum. So if you look at, you know, specialized for example you know they're ordering hundreds of thousands of units and so that's really the key to those really big players it's not necessarily that the quality is higher the molds are better it's more about just the scale of the business between the first tier and the second tier the third tier however that's like the wild west those are anybody who wants to opens up a factory and just start selling product you don't know anything about the quality or what materials they're using or anything like that
1: Yeah, I traveled over to Canton Fair just before the pandemic and I didn't really have a motivation for going. There was a buddy of mine who had some business and I tagged along, I'd never been to China. And I had a look at, you know, obviously as an avid cycling fan drawn to the cycling area and talking to the bike manufacturers and I was struck by just how little knowledge the salespeople had. They obviously weren't expecting like cyclists to ask cycling questions. But when you start asking stuff about Stiffness. It's just like the response is, "Yeah, good bike, good bike. I'll get you, good bike." (laughs) It's (laughs) like, "All right, can we go a bit deeper than this?" Yeah,
0: yeah. You know, so there was a point in my working career where I was the owner of one of those substantially large factories, and you know, I was building bikes for Cervelo, for Santa Cruz, for uh, BH, for Pivot, and so I I was part of that top tier of the industry for many years. Um, I actually sort of helped to create it, and so. A lot of those second, third tier factories are actually just employees that came out of the first tier factories that just wanted to go create their own businesses. So there's a lot of of cross DNA between all of the factories in the industry.
1: So fill in that gap for me between you arriving in Taiwan in 96 and you coming to own one of these factories.
0: Well, I went to work for the very first carbon fiber vendor in Taiwan, which is called Advanced Composites. And Advanced um, did a joint venture with Look for a technology transfer. And so I worked at that factory kind of helping to manage that technology transfer between Look and uh, and the factory. So we, we basically, you know, learned how to make bikes from Look is the best way to explain it. And I worked at that factory for a couple of years. It was interesting, but um, quite honestly, where the factory was located was such a polluted part of Taiwan at the time that I really struggled with just the whole environmental part. I still wanted to ride my bike every now and again, and it was just a a terrible place to live. So I was offered a job working for Profile Design, moving their production from the USA to Asia, to Taiwan, essentially. And so I did that then for a couple of years, and it was pretty amazing. You know, Profile was very, very big, you know, handlebar maker, AeroBars especially. Yeah, I remember AeroBars. And I went to like these small... Mom and pop, sort of uh, handlebar makers. And I'm like, hey, can you make this for us? And they're like, yeah, sure, we could do that. I'm like, well, I need 200,000 of them. And they were just blown away by the quantities that we needed. And we created so many millionaires on the back of this and created so many big factories now because of that original sort of profile business of being able to build their business around it. And so then, you know, after a couple of years, I, I left profile and I started my own. What's called a trading company, where I took care of getting products made for other people. And my first customer was Grupo, which is Chinelli and Columbus and 3T. And then, so then I took care of helping those brands get products made in Taiwan. And then, on the back of that, a couple of years earlier, I had met Phil and Gerard from Cervello. And at the time, Cervello was super, super small. And they didn't have the ability to have frames made in Taiwan yet, but we kept in touch over the years. And uh, then when they were ready, I now had this trading company. And so I facilitated getting the very first Cervellos made for them. And then it went somewhat okay, but we found it a bit challenging. And over time, I ended up just building my own factory to support first Cervello and then you know, some other brands.
1: Was it clear then that carbon fiber was the de facto winner? In
0: 1997, I went to Specialized and um, I was there, you know, trying to promote carbon fiber, you know, because I was working for Advanced and I had, you know, a whole day's meetings with the guys and they're like, yeah, we're not really sold on the material. We don't, we don't see it. And I'm like, okay. And I had the same exact discussion with Columbus They're like, no, I don't don't see it. And then, you know, so a lot of people didn't really believe in it until a couple of years later.
1: Can you remember that moment when carbon fiber allowed you to achieve a design that wasn't possible with other materials? That light bulb moment where you're like, oh, we're never going back.
0: Yeah, it was the Cervelo P3 Carbon, the very first time trial carbon bike that they made that, you know, I was involved in. And so... That was sort of like the first bike where, you know, the shapes and everything were allowed to really totally sort of unfold themselves
1: and then use the material the way it was designed to be used. Was that the one with the cutout for the wheel on the stay?
0: What it was, was it was the first bike, you know, they had an aluminum version, but this was the first one where the seat tube followed the same
1: arc of the rear wheel. Yes, yes. That was an iconic design. It was brilliant. Mm -hmm. If you look back with the benefit of hindsight and reflect on all those years of design, innovation, craftsmanship, is there a product or project that you're proudest of?
0: Well, obviously, it's factor.
1: <laughs> no, in, in in the pre-factor years.
0: Oh, in the pre-factor years? Gosh, there were so many. You know, First, we were producing very nice bikes for Cervelo. Then we were doing very nice bikes for Santa Cruz. I think it was always sort of the N plus one of projects, of always moving on to the next one, the next one. Um, so there's, there's not really one particular one, but I think what it is a scenario that I always remind myself of is, um, we went to Eurobike and Quintana Roo had shown a carbon fiber time trial bike. And this is when I, you know, and Cervelo was like, oh damn, we really wanted to get that done, you know, but we're not planning it for another year. And I'm like, well, why don't we get one done for interbike? And like, that's three weeks later. I'm like, yeah, we can do it. And uh, so then the engineer from Cervelo, he came, stayed at my house, and he designed the bike night and day, um, spent about a week. And then we were actually able to get a mold made and samples made and actually arrive at Interbike in Las Vegas with what looked like a rideable bike. And it really then stole all the thunder from that Quintana Roo. And it was a pretty amazing, you know, kind of like uh a mission impossible project that came together
1: speaking of katana rue like what causes those brands that seem to have a significant market share to just disappear you know there's, there's great examples in other industries you know nokia have the entire phone market and then they disappear but Raleigh and katana Roo stick out in my head as two big brands that i have not seen in a long long time i think it's innovation
0: i think if you stop innovating you die um, that's that's my impression and i think you know you mentioned nokia i think it's the same right they they stopped innovating and they they died
1: where does the innovation come from is that engineer led or is that founder led i think it's founder led yeah
0: cuz you know the founder has to hire the engineers and so if the founder is not believing in the future of where the things are going, you know, you need to have that foresight of, you know, this is where, where things are going and this is what we can do. And then you hire the engineers to, to get you there. But if the founder doesn't believe in it, then there's no chance.
1: When you've been building out your teams, is that, is that a strength of yours, identifying talent and hiring the right talent? And are you able to hand off responsibility or do you struggle to let go of those reins?
0: Well, I'm lucky in the sense that, you know, I've now been doing this for nearly 30 years. So, you know, so many of the people that work as my employees are people that I worked for as their supplier in the past. So like my head of engineering now, his name is Graham Shrive. You know, he was the head of engineering at Cervello. And so, It was a case of, you know, we worked really well together when I was his supplier. Now, let's flip that up. Now, let him be the head of engineering at Factor, and I give him total autonomy to do what needs to be done. Of course, I'm part of all the meetings, but at the end of the day, somebody has to be responsible, and, you know, I hold Graham responsible for it.
1: It's amazing longevity in a single industry. And when you're in an industry, a singular industry that long there must be some crazy high points. And, you know, we're, we're going to get into the factor story because it's amazing and Tour de France stage wins. But before we jump into the the shiny highlight reel that everyone loves to showcase on Instagram these days, what's the dark points? Like, what's the worst moments of this journey? Is it a call? Is it a text, an email, a day? What springs to mind?
0: I was watching Perry roubaix and George Hincapie snaps his fork off and goes crashing off into the dirt. And I was making forks for Trek. And I'm like, oh my God, was that mine? And, you know, right away you're getting on the, the phone. You're like trying to find out what was he riding? Was that ours? You know? And I, I would say those are sort of the darkest moments. How I was very lucky. That was an in-house made fork from Trek. It wasn't ones that I was supplying them. But I would say that you know when you're watching bike races on TV, people are using the things that you've designed and manufactured, and then it breaks. That's a pretty dark moment because you don't know why it broke—if it was something that you did, or if it was something that you know there was an exterior uh, result.
1: A topic we've been exploring a lot on the podcasts, talking with athletes and founders. It's kind of the true meaning of success because the success at all costs, or I'll do whatever I can to win. That's a punchline. That's not the reality because most people at some point won't do whatever it takes to win. There's a cost that they're not willing to forgo. If it, for some people, it's they're not willing to forgo their mental health. Others, they're not willing to sacrifice the quality of their relationship with their significant other. In building this company, has there been a personal toll on you? And if so, would you do it differently?
0: I, I think it, it's, it's maybe hard to answer that question because I need to separate Factor from the work I was doing before Factor. I would say that in building any great business, it obviously takes a lot of single-minded focus and you spend a lot of time away from your family, away from your friends, building this business and you maybe sometimes I think you lose, you lose sight of what's really important and a lot of times it takes an event to try to, you know, kind of swing you back around to understand that, you know, this is maybe not the most important thing as you kind of built it up in your mind that there's other things you need to be focused on, whether it could be, you know, your family, your children, just your, your own physical health. Because there was a time when I was weighing 90 odd kilos and quite unhealthy, from just working and socializing, because there is a a lot of social aspect of of the journey in Taiwan. Is it a lonely pursuit? Um, Yes and no. You make a lot of friends along the way, but I always kind of say they're friends of my bike. They're not really friends of me, because as soon as you stop, they feel like they're not your friends anymore.
1: Yeah, I'm struck by the image of Michael Phelps after being the most successful Olympian of all time. And he's in his hotel room weeks after the Olympics, and he's contemplating suicide. And he hasn't got a friend circle around him that he can confide in. And I just think, you know, we're so obsessed with revenue, we're so obsessed with medals, we're so obsessed with, that we rarely pause to reflect on the cost of quote unquote success. Because can we call Phelps' achievement success if he's no one to celebrate it with and he doesn't like who he's become?
0: Yeah, it's um, <laughs> you know, that really hits really close to home because I'm going through a kind of a dark, a dark period myself. Yeah, I, I think that it's really important to have that safety net, no matter what it is that you're doing. If you're trying to achieve any sort of success and you don't have that safety net, it's really easy, I think, to fail. And to, to falter. And no matter how successful you've been, it's really hard to, to justify that it was worth it.
1: Yeah, it, it's a line I'm trying to shred at the moment. and I'm trying to see, you know, I want to blow this podcast up to being the biggest podcast in the world, but what's the toll I'm willing to pay to get there? And, and how do you know when you approach that line? Do you have, in your experience, has there been warning signs to say, hey, you're treading close to the line? Or is there anything to watch out for along the way? Um, I think that health
0: is really important. And so I think when you start to see that your health is deteriorating, you know, you've pushed it too far. I think you can also look at relationships, but it's always difficult to to judge a relationship as necessarily like it's falling apart because of the business, or maybe it's falling apart just because it's not a proper relationship. But definitely health, I think is really a a metric, which is easy to look at and understand.
1: I love that. And I've written down that friends at a bike because I wonder that with the podcast, like I get this chance to chat to these amazing people, but are they friends or are they friends of the podcast? Would they pick mm-hmm. up the phone if I didn't have, you know, really half a million people tuning in each month?
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a real a real good question. I mean, I was, you know, in, in my life, I've had very few uh, chances or needs actually to reach out to my support group. But just this past week, I actually did and I was very happy that um, to find that I did have people that were there to support me.
1: That's awesome. We are happy to have HVMN as one of today's show sponsors. There's been a huge buzz in the cycling world about ketones and their effects on focus, weight management, and performance. But what are ketones? Well, ketones are a natural source of fuel for your body. They're up to 28% more efficient than glucose, making them an incredible fuel source for long endurance rides or even races. After overindulging a little bit in the holiday period, I'm doubling back down on my diet and I've been using ketones along with intermittent fasting to get dialed back and into my optimum race weight. I'm taking them as soon as I wake in the morning and it's not only suppressing my hunger, it's improving my focus and I actually have a lot of energy, which is opposed to when I intermittent fast without ketones. I find myself tired, sometimes irritable and can't focus on tasks that well. If you want to check them out and give them a try for yourself, head on over to hvmn.com forward slash Roadman and use the code ROADMAN at checkout to save 20% off your order. If you're looking to up your form, double down and get an edge this season, this may be exactly what you're looking for. Head on over to hvmn.com forward slash Roadman and use the code ROADMAN at checkout to save 20% on your order. All the details of this offer are in today's show notes. Rob, let's take a a slight left turn on that. And I want to talk about Factor. Uh, For me, the coolest bike brand in the world and so pumped to have an association between the podcast and Factor. Well, I'm fascinated about its inception story. When did you conceive the idea of Factor?
0: I think there was a few things going on. You know, I was building bikes for a lot of companies and I could see that there was becoming these sort of consolidations in the industry. You know, I was building, as I said, bikes for Focus, Cervelo and Santa Cruz. And then all of a sudden, one company comes along and buys all three brands. And so in them buying all three brands, all of a sudden, my importance really changed. They, I went from being like a friend of all of the founders, the entrepreneur owners, to just being a supplier, you know, uh, getting a request for quote. You know, they would say, hey, you'll have the, the ability to bid on this project. And I was like, really? That's not the kind of relationship I had with Cervelo. Cervello didn't have another supplier. They came to me and, you know, they're like, this is what we want to do. And I'm like, yeah, great, let's do it. And then I would give them a bill at the end and everybody was happy. And now all of a sudden I was becoming just another supplier. So that didn't really sit very well with me. And then the bike racer, baden Cook he, uh, he and I are friends and he kind of had this idea of what if we got a bicycle brand and we got a team behind the brand to sort of co-invest. And that way we could really blow this brand up really quickly. And I'm like, yeah, that's a really good idea. Um, but you know, you're just skimming the surface of how hard this will be. But, you know, (laughs) (laughs) we still decided, you know, I had my factory, I had a solid business at the time. I'm like, you know, why don't you go pursue this Baden and I'll support you from the factory side. And sort of that's how it kicked off really was, you know, this was Baden's idea that he kind of did go kick it off. And then I supported, you know, from the product side. However, very quickly, um, it became clear that I was going to be a lot more involved than just the product side of it.
1: Can you share what is the process of developing a new bike model, like from the initial design phase to the final production? How much testing and iteration is involved to get a production bike?
0: It takes anywhere from nine months to two years, really, to, to fully develop a bike. It kind of depends on how well-baked you know, the idea is of what you're trying to get across. So if I look at Factor, I don't really want to look at the what we call the, the one, because that was sort of like a model that I took over from the existing factor. If I look at the O2, which was like the first bike that we brought out that was then raced by AG Desert, it was what I always wanted the Cervelo R5 to be, but sort of bumped up at the next level. So it was very easy to understand what was the the goal of the bike. You know, it was to be very light, very stiff, but not particularly aerodynamic, but a bike that every racer would want to use. And so that bike probably took about a year of development from the time that we. You know, started the drawings to where we were actually, you know, delivering bikes to the team.
1: And do you start off like for people listening to this who haven't ridden a lot of bikes, they won't have a very nuanced understanding of the difference between riding a factory, a Cervelo, a Giant, and a Trek. But somebody like yourself who's been in the industry has a much more nuanced understanding of it. I'm trying to think of a comparison. Is it like almost you start off with like the flavor of a chocolate in mind and you're like, well, that's what I want to engineer towards. It's got to taste like strawberry.
0: Yeah, I, I think what what we do is we have, uh, you know, engineering performance goals. You know, how light, how stiff, how balanced we want the products to be. And so, you know, we always have those goals in mind. And then you always need to have some level of flexibility because, You know, if the idea is you want a super light frame, then you can't be the stiffest frame, but you always want to sort of find that balance of, you know, the, the frontal stiffness to the rear stiffness. And so a lot of times it's being able to quantify, you know, what makes a good bike. And I believe a lot of brands, they have no idea because they used to come to me to build their bikes and they would never give me any performance matrix. They would just say, we want this bike and we want it to look like this. I'm like, Oh, great easy job, you know, but, you know, one or two iterations and here's your bike. And they're like, oh, this is great. And then, you know, if I look at what we do for factor, it could be a hundred iterations of, you know, make it, test it, break it, ride it, you know, over and over again until we're really happy with what we have. And then we go to market with it.
1: And is there a process, uh, you know, I've built uh, apps in the past, And one of the important stages in app development is, you know, taking it from alpha into beta, opening it up, getting a bunch of customer feedback, and then integrating that customer feedback into the product development. Is it a similar life cycle?
0: It is, except we don't use, um, that's what world tour cycling teams are for. Okay. A lot of times people don't understand how valuable that is, is we'll make maybe 15 different iterations that we'll actually give to the world tour guys and we'll ask them to ride them and we'll try to see if they can actually pick up the differences between each of those iterations. And then we throw a few dummies in there as well knowing that it's not going to be a good bike so that we' you know they would obviously gauge you know what it is that they're feeling. And then from that, that's really how we're, we bring the product to market is from their feedback.
1: Has the industry risen to such a point that safety standards are, you know, they're just something you don't need to overly concern yourself with in the engineering process now, or are they still of paramount importance? Like do you still watch the tour and worry about that copy moment of a fork snapping?
0: Um, I think we know a lot more now about how to test to match the real world environment, but I don't believe that it's necessarily the industry standards. I believe that there's enough brands. Um, that have an understanding of it. But if you follow only the industry standards, you might be left short, I would say. But I, you know, we do industry standards, but we have lots of testing that we believe follows more closely the way the products are used in the real world.
1: Uh, I was over in Girona a couple of weeks ago. I'm going to go back and forth, as you know. And there's a bike shop in Girona and they slapped a coffee shop onto the side of the bike shop. And I was just looking at it and I was like, of all the towns in the world that didn't need another coffee shop, when you stepped back and looked at the ecosystem of cycling, was there a sense that, oh, the world just does not need another bike brand? Now you have the challenge of trying to differentiate your bike brand in a crowded market. How do you do that?
0: Um... I thought that you're right. There are so many bike brands and I didn't really see, again, a need for just another bike brand. What I saw was the need for a genuine bike brand that really wanted to tell the truth in engineering and wanted to make the very best product without cost being part of the equation. And so, you know, I hate to always keep referring back to Cervelo, you know, but you know, there was times where I would say to these brands, not only Cervelo, it could be any of the brands I was working for, for a few extra dollars, we could make this X amount of percent better. And always the answer was no, it has to cost this. And it has to cost this because we need to sell it for this. And we need to make this 40% margin or whatever it may have been. And I was like, this is a really bent way of thinking. Because you're not actually producing the best product. You're producing the best product for that particular price. And so I just wanted to make the very best product. And then I didn't want to be concerned with exactly how much margin I made. I just want to make sure, okay, I'm making enough money to run my business properly. And that's what I created with Factor. And I think we've done it very genuinely. Because the other thing I hate is I read all of the engineering, you know, garbage that's put out there and it's so much bullshit. And I call bullshit on it. Never once has anybody said, oh, well, he's not really an authority. He he doesn't know what he's talking about. Everybody just says, oh, okay, we're not going to challenge this.
1: Yeah. Does that give you wiggle room, the fact that you aren't totally building the company around bottom line profit? Not that profit's not important to you, but just it's not at the forefront of your thoughts. Does that give you wiggle room now to look at sustainability and ethics, which look both to be quite considerable challenges in the bike industry?
0: Um, I think I would add one more sort of metric to that. And I I would say paying a livable wage is really important to me. And so all of my employees make well above what I would consider sort of like the, the minimum of the cycling industry, well above that. And they do that at my expense in many ways, because you know I pay myself quite a bit less, as do some of our other executives, in order to make sure that all of our employees are very well incentivized. So I would say that that's one. Sustainability in the bike industry is super difficult. You know, we're, we're creating a very green product or green use product, but you know, carbon fiber at the end of the day is a petroleum product. And there's there's really no way around it. And there's really very little recycling possibilities around it, as you learned from Josh Portner a couple of weeks ago.
1: Yeah, I tried to Josh on it. And Josh is, he seems to be trying to move the envelope on sustainability. But as far as I remember, you'll speak better to this. The best you can do at the moment is make like sealant from bike frames. Like that's the height of the innovation. You can't make a product from it.
0: You cannot from the thermostat carbon fiber. What we do with our material, we try to not let it end up in a landfill. So we actually work with the local government where we chop it and they mix it into concrete as a reinforcement. So it goes into a lot of paved roads. Um, as I know, we're the only company doing that in uh, Taiwan
1: is there, it seems to be a trend in bike manufacturing of almost a race to the bottom. You mentioned living wage. You're based in Taiwan, which when I think of Taiwan, I don't really think of cheap labor. I think of almost like Germany, like the Germany of that part of the world. Is there, you know, a, I don't want to say a pull, but is there a motivation or an incentive for you to stay there or to go to the likes of Vietnam or lower cost labor markets?
0: I used to own a company, a very big trading company that I I explained about before. I actually sold my shares in that to my old business partner who still owns some carbon fiber factories. And um, currently they're building a factory in Bangladesh. And he was so proud to tell me that they're going to pay $6 a day for their labor in Bangladesh. And I told him as a human on this planet, he should be ashamed of himself for even saying something like that, better yet doing it. I don't believe in the race to the bottom, but it's definitely the case, whether it be Vietnam or Cambodia, but, you know, and now Bangladesh, I'm just blown away by it, to be honest with you. And I don't think it's necessary. I think if we build a good quality product that lasts an extra few years then, you know, it's a circular economy. You know, somebody could ride their bike for a few years, they could sell it, and the next guy can continue to ride it. So buy something better that lasts longer.
1: That's what worries me about the trend. One of the robust sectors in the bike sales last couple of years has been e-bikes. And, you know, electric vehicles, super popular. Uh, cobalt is a super unsustainable material and the idea that we can ethically source cobalt is just total nonsense i read a report recently it's like over 95 percent of cobalt is coming out of one tiny african country in totally inhumane conditions being dug out by humans no machinery it's like how do you see that e-bike ecosystem developing over the next few years
0: well I'm not an expert in e-bikes, but obviously I am seeing that, you know, there's a huge explosion and, you know, battery technology is changing on on a weekly basis almost. So, um, but I am very, very concerned with, okay, you know, it's bad enough now that we have hundreds of millions of bikes sitting in garages. Now we're going to have hundreds of millions of e-bikes sitting in garages because eventually they will seep. It will end up in our, you know, landfills. It will end up in our soil. And we will be having, you know, you know, a great battery issue.
1: I want to finish up just talking about sort of the performance aspect of the bikes you're building. And maybe to kick off that, tell me a little bit about Alex Dowsett's attempt at the world air record. How much of a challenge was that from an engineering standpoint?
0: Well, there was a few really big challenges. You know, obviously he decided to do it in the height of COVID, um, which meant that we actually, you know, were almost shut down at the time that he decided to do it. And so it, it made building a track bike, you know, very challenging. His his track bike was a one-off and it was basically built by my uh, head of engineering uh, in Taiwan and myself by hand. <laughs> so, you know, but we were lucky that, you know, it followed the time trial bike that we had only, you know, just recently launched the Hanzo. So you know, as far as the design and all of the, the aerodynamic aspects of it, that was all pretty straightforward. But it was, you know, how to turn that Hanzo into a track bike was very, very complicated. And then I believe that that Alex went and did some wind tunnel testing with it. And, you know, between the skin suit and, you know, all of the other things that that were incorporated, he had, you know, what was the fastest setup in the world at the time. I don't know if what Ghana, was, you know, I don't know if that Pinarello is actually any faster. We haven't seen a, a head-to-head, uh, you know, comparison. But I, I believe that, you know, the Hanzo definitely, you know, was incredibly competitive because you could see that Alex rode the third fastest hour in in the world on that bike. So.
1: How do you measure these fastest bikes? Is there an objective standard to show what the fastest bike is? It seems like every company in the world throws their bike into a wind tunnel and then runs, you know, a hundred different yaw angles at it until it finds the yaw angle that makes their bike look fastest. And it's really more of a marketing stunt than it is any objectionable data.
0: I think that there's companies that go to the wind tunnel for the photo opportunity, and there's companies that go to the wind tunnel that actually do science. Um, the ones that are there actually doing science, there's probably five or six of them, um, and and I would say that are one of them. Uh, we went to the wind tunnel five times in 2022 um, with lots of different prototypes of product that we test long before you know it gets you know fully manufactured. I always find it very funny when I see these photos of bikes in the wind tunnel and it's like a production bike. I'm like, well. Great so you made a bike and you went to the wind tunnel <laughs> you know? So we go to the wind tunnel with lots of plastic models, lots of prototypes that we're doing the testing of long before we actually uh, open any molds and start to produce it We also get a lot of our competitors bikes and take them to the wind tunnel and we benchmark against them So you know that's why I can honestly say the Hanzo is the world's fastest TT bike because we, basically got together what we felt were the fastest TT bikes, um, brought them all to the wind tunnel, tested them all side by side, and, you know, came to a conclusion.
1: We went for a pizza and a beer in London uh, about a month ago, a little over. If we were to go for a pizza and a beer five years from now, what would have to happen between now and then for you to say, factor, it's been my, you know, life's purpose. It's been my greatest defining moment. What's ideal? What's perfect to look like?
0: I'd like to win the Tour de France and I'd like to just know that five years from now we're as genuine um, as we are today five years from now so that we're, we're, we're sticking to our principles of producing the best bikes in the world and providing you know an experience. Um, you know I like to say you know I'm very grateful that I'm building a product that brings a lot of health and happiness to people all around the world and I hope that five years from now, I can say the same.
1: Rob, I've loved this conversation. Thanks for chatting with me on the Roadman Podcast. Thank you.
2: Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Have you ever wondered how good you could actually be? Each of us has a unique set of circumstances with work, family and social obligations, but we also want to fulfill our potential in cycling. Okay, okay. Maybe you won't ever win the Tour de France, but for most of us, this is what cycling is about.